Welcome to the Militant Grind Show. Today, we're joined by Amanda Blackwood, a remarkable human trafficking survivor turned author, artist, and trauma recovery mentor. Amanda's journey of overcoming adversity and using her experiences to help others is truly inspiring. She shared her global story and authored over a dozen books, contributing to a portion of sales to combat human trafficking. Based in Denver with her rescue cats and supportive husband, Amanda continues to be a guiding light for healing and resilience. Join us for a powerful conversation about transformation and hope. Amanda, how are you doing this afternoon? Absolutely fantastic and super excited to be here with you. Thank you. How are you? <laughs> oh, I'm great. I'm great. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that we connected because I feel like this is a a uh, situation that people are interested but it's often overlooked but i feel like you know like the people that have has been through human trafficking and survived human trafficking don't necessarily have a voice you know we don't hear from the survivors we don't hear about the story so it's just like oh wow it happened oh you know they busted some people in florida okay well hey it is what it is but we don't know like the inner workings of it how people become victims and, you know, how they, you know, basically like what they went through in those situations. So, you know, just starting, I would like to start off with like how you were raised and, you know, things that you've been through in your childhood, such as traumas and things like that, because me doing these type of uh, podcasts and, you know, having several guests, I learned that usually people that go through traumatic events, they're usually victims of things that have happened to them in their childhood that causes them to overlook certain things that they should deem as a red flag, you know, because of the trauma and the things that they went through. It's like they want to be loved. And so whoever says that, hey, I love you or hey, I'm interested in you, they just, you know, fall for it. You know what I mean? Because they don't really have any boundaries on who is authentic, who's real, who's really for me, because usually they lack that as a child and growing up. So I want to start there and, you know, I'll just let you have it. I mean, I know some things about you. We talked earlier, but I just want to go over like, okay, where were you born, how you were raised, your family life, et cetera. So we could just start from there. So I was born uh, at the Lundstuhl Hospital outside of uh, the... Air Force Base in Germany. I'm trying to remember the name of the um trying to remember the name of the base and I don't, but I remember K Town, Kaiserslautern was the town outside of that military base. Mm-hmm. Rammstein. So when I was born, my first language was actually German. I spoke to all the neighbors in German. I loved it. My family was American. My mother was from Arkansas. My dad was from New York. So already we've got a clash. Uh, my mother was Democrat. My father was a Republican. So again, there's another clash. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in this household that was a clash of all things. Mm-hmm. German culture versus Southern culture versus Northern culture for here in the U.S. None of these things matched up. And it was a very confusing world for me. We left Germany when I was two and a half. And some of my earliest memories are from back when I was still in Germany. But my first traumatic memory happened when I was four. I was a victim of molestation at four years old by my older brother. Mm -hmm. My mother was mentally and emotionally abusive. 
my father was physically abusive and said that both of them would say, if you think this is abuse, you ought to see what we went through as though it was some kind of a competition. Right. So I learned to do exactly what so many people are still doing today. I would take my traumas and I would put them up on a shelf like it was a trophy. My trauma is more important. My trauma is bigger and better and worse all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And we got to stop doing that. Trauma trophies don't exist. Trauma changes who you are. Right. How can you compare that to anybody else's story? Right. So growing up in this military household, we moved around a lot. I did not really know my extended family. We moved multiple times. When we left Germany, we went to Maryland and then Arkansas, California, Utah. We just kind of bounced around. And throughout all of these years, the abuse continued. The molestation ended when my mother found us out behind the juniper bush when I was at a, I was still four. It was still pretty chilly outside. I'm thinking it was spring. So it had continued for probably six months. Mm-hmm. When it ended at that point, I had relearned that I didn't have a voice. I wasn't able to tell people what had happened because I was going to be to blame. I was going to be the one that would get in trouble for it. And if it wasn't me getting in trouble, it would be my brother. And he was my only ally in the world, I felt. So I had a mental and emotional relationship with my older brother. He was my person. He was all I had. But he was the person who was abusing me. So without the voice to be able to speak up, I learned to keep these things internal and to go through life, not telling people about anything that happened because I didn't want them to get in trouble. I didn't want myself to get in trouble. I was constantly in trouble. I don't know if you can see this or not, but I have very red hair and getting in trouble is a natural feature for most of us redheads. (laughs) (laughs) So I was molested repeatedly by other people growing up also because I was an easy victim because I did not receive what I was looking for from my family. I was, wasn't getting that love and affection I was seeking and looking for constantly. I was finding it in other people. So there was another kid at a, at the public swimming pool, molested me in the swimming pool in public view. My aunt's husband, uncle by marriage, molested me again in a swimming pool with my brother there. Uh, There was a stranger in a parking lot at a video rental store when I was 14. And it just continued on and on. And I just didn't ever tell anybody because for one, my mother had taught me that if something kept happening to one person, it had to be that one person's fault. Mm -hmm. So I learned to blame myself very early on. And I learned that people were going to take slices of my soul, I called it whether I wanted them to or not. And if I really wanted to do something about it, I needed to use this to my own advantage rather than waiting for somebody to take it away from me anyway. Wow. That's a lot to hone in. Uh, (laughs) Oh, okay. So when your mom caught your brother you know behind the bush or whatever what was her response then like how did she make you feel what did she say she was mad at both of us she swore up and down that she didn't know what was happening she still swears up and down that what i say happened never actually happened 
and mm-hmm. that I'm lying through my teeth. But really, the reality is that I believe that she's angry and she's in denial because she understands that she didn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And with her not doing anything about it, she has to own that unless it never happened in the first place. So she has a tremendous amount of guilt and I've let it go. I've had to forgive her. I've had to forgive my brother for all of this stuff because I understand that she was a very young mother. She didn't know what she was doing. She didn't know how to change it. She didn't know how to stop it. She didn't know what was causing it. And it was much easier to just get mad at both of us and to ground us and tell us, don't ever do that again, rather than confront what was actually happening. I think she was in shock. Hmm. And she didn't really want to put too much blame on your brother like that because she wanted to keep his innocence, right? Right. And it's so much easier, no matter how old you are, it's so much easier to take the side of the abuser than the abused Mm -hmm. because taking the side of the person who has been traumatized means that it's now your responsibility to stand up and do something about it. Mm -hmm. People don't know what to do. So they're going to sit back and say, I didn't know. Right. Because it's just easier. Right. Yeah. And it's and it's probably well, I look at it also as like a, a lack of accountability and responsibility when things like that do happen. Yeah. And so but it wasn't her fault. Right. Right. Because most of <laughs> most of the time it's just learned behavior and learned responses, you know, even though, you know, if if we'll say. Like, say now that you're an adult and, you know, you do have a child and you have grandchildren. If you were to see that scenario yourself, how will you respond? I think it would be hard to see my grandchild going through something like this. Mm -hmm. Right now, my grandchild is less than a year old, just a little bitty baby. But she is so precious. She's just a tiny little thing. And I think if anybody ever abused her, I'd probably want to kill them (laughs) just straight up. I would want to end them. Mm -hmm. She is innocent. Leave her alone. You want Mm -hmm. to abuse somebody, come after somebody your own size. Come after me because I'll show you what it means to be abused. Right. Right. I would do anything to protect this child. But I also know that I am much older now than my mother was when it happened to her kids. Mm -hmm. And she had grown up in a fairly abusive home herself she didn't know how to react and honestly neither did i for a very long time Mm -hmm. so did she end up having like a level of forgiveness for her due to her lack of you know knowing how to handle situations like that there's a lot of forgiveness when it comes to them but i also had to understand before i got to that point that forgiveness didn't mean allowing people that were abusive back into my life It meant just letting go. It Mm -hmm. meant saying you and what you did to me no longer controls my life. And it no longer controls the forefront of my thoughts. I have other things to think about. I have other things to do with my life and I'm moving on. And when you say moving on, what kind of boundaries did you create? The last contact I had with my mother was in 2013. I was in training to be a flight attendant and I did that for two years, three months, 28 days. Not that I was counting, loved it. (laughs) But when I was in training, I was probably about an hour's drive from my mother. And it was the first time I had been that close to her for years. Mm -hmm. She found out that I was in the same state as her. And she got very upset with me because I didn't bother to tell her that I was there. The training was brutal. 
-hmm. It was 12 to 16 hour days. It was five, six days a week. And it was a full 28 days. And I told her, she had sent me this really nasty, snarky email. And I told her, okay, here's the deal. I am here for a purpose. I am learning a, a job that's very important, something I really want to do with my life. Mm-hmm. Right now, I don't have the mental capacity or the patience to be able to have this conversation with you. However, my graduation is set for this date. And as if you can hold off for right now, then I will invite you to my graduation. We can all go out to lunch afterward and maybe celebrate that and actually sit down and have this conversation that I think you're wanting to have. Mm-hmm. But please, for the sake of me wanting to have a better future for myself, please hold off on this until that day when we can have this conversation in person. That, that was, was only two weeks away. Mm-hmm. Instead of waiting two weeks, she waited 10 minutes. And I received back an email from her that dragged up one of the most painful scenarios she possibly could have pulled up. And it was, she claimed it was for the purpose of wanting to remind me of the good times when all it did was make me feel as though nothing in the world mattered except for her feelings. Mm-hmm. And it was then that I decided you and I no longer have a relationship. You do not value my boundaries. You do not value me as a person. You you don't see me as anything other than the 15-year-old, perpetually lying, teenage, runaway, troubled kid that I was. I no longer have space for you in my life. My life left that a long time ago. I haven't been that person for a very long time. And I'm sorry, I will always love you, but I can't allow you into my life. And so what? how, how did your life, change after you created that boundary because i know like that's hard for a lot of people to do is to create boundaries with a parent and then often you know some people feel guilty or be shamed or say oh my mom died and i wish i could talk to her and you know what i mean it's like you know society tells you no that's that's not what you're supposed to do you should be the bigger person you know you know that's your mom etc they took care of you so it's like you know, you, I'm, you had to ignore all of that, but how did that basically change, you know, the trajectory of your life after that? Cause that's been, it's been 10 years, you know, and that's a very long time. <laughs> and it's, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. You know? And I did listen to those voices for a very long time because there had been periods of my time, my life where I just didn't have anything to do with them. And people were like, oh, you had to give them another shot. They're your parents. They're the only parents you'll ever have. And no matter what, they'll always love you. And I bought into that time and time again, my kept going back and allowing them back into my life. And they kept on doing whatever they could to hurt me or mm-hmm. damage me in whatever way they could. Right. But Making that final decision and walking away opened me up to the ability to finally heal from not just everything else that I had experienced after I left them, but from the damage that they did. As long as I remained in that place where I had been hurt in that relationship with them, Mm -hmm. I was not healing. I was allowing them to rip off the band-aids and pick at the scabs. Right. I needed to walk away from that and pull myself away from what was their acid breath, basically, and allow myself the fresh air to breathe and move on. Mm -hmm. 
it helped me in tremendous ways. I started to understand more about our relationships, our dynamics, why they were the way they were, what mental health issues might possibly exist in their own lives, and even how I reacted to certain things and how that was related to them. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Because I talked to a, um, a lady that went through narcissistic abuse and she ended up doing the same thing. And she was like, it was so hard for her at first. She would cry all the time. She'll be lonely. But then after a while, she was like, it helped her tremendously in her life. You know, so it's just interesting to hear someone have the same story. And it's refreshing because I I could understand how hard that is for anybody, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so tough world. Yeah, very, very. And so you said that you ran away at 16. Um, I think we stopped at 14 when you say you were assaulted by the man um, in the parking lot or whatever. So how was life, you know, at 16? Because I know that's probably like a rough age for a lot of people, period, you know, because you're trying to find yourself who you are. And if you went through some abuse, you're kind of like rebellious. You know, because you're fed up and, you know, you're like, I'm tired of this. I don't want to take this no more. So how was life for you then? And then, you know, we could go into young adulthood and things like that. So, again, natural red hair. I've always been a rebel. Always. (laughs) (laughs) It's in my DNA. I was born this way. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I didn't talk about with my childhood is what led to a lot of this stuff later on. So when you go through this kind of abuse, when you're this young, you start acting out. It's a natural thing. This is how the young mind is trying to deal with trauma. Mm -hmm. My mother took us into the doctors and the doctors said that my brother had ADHD and that I was healthy and fine. So they gave him a prescription for Ritalin and they sent us home. My mom didn't believe the doctors. So she started breaking the medication in half and giving it to me when I was four. After a year of being on this highly addictive substance, she took me off for a couple of days before taking me back into the doctor so that I would be going through a drug withdrawal and be pinging off the walls at five years old. Mm. And they said, yeah, there's definitely something up. And they gave me my own prescription for Ritalin. And I was on this for years, years and years. I ended up taking a Ritalin. Um, It's kind of mind altering. And one of the things that I learned was this was back in 84 when I was first diagnosed. One of the things that I learned is somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 to 95% of the kids diagnosed with ADD or a variation thereof within the mid eighties mm-hmm. were actually survivors of severe trauma and they were giving us band-aids. Mm-hmm. They were trying to cover up the problem and trying to diagnose it as something else. So when I was 15 is when I started taking myself off the medication and I started running away from home. I was flushing the pills down the toilet every day. I didn't like them. When I ran away from home the first time I was gone for a couple of weeks and I didn't take the pills with me and I started to feel like a normal human being and I started to understand that this medication was making me into a zombie. Mm. And I don't suggest this for everybody because there are certain medications that are very difficult to live your life without. If you find the proper uh, medication for bipolar disorder, stay with your medication. Mm -hmm. It's working wonders. And really it is helping you, even though sometimes you feel like it's not, but I was diagnosed incorrectly. 
And I knew that. So when I stopped taking the medication, my parents took me into a therapist and she tried to put me on Clonopin and Paxil and Prozac and a bunch of other mind altering medications because I was depressed and because I was going through drug withdrawals and nobody could diagnose that because nobody knew. Mm -hmm. This was the first time I'd ever gone to see this, this psychiatrist. I use that term loosely. And she (laughs) diagnosed me without knowing me just based on what my parents were telling her. And my parents were wrong about 90% of what they thought I was doing at the time. They accused me of being uh, promiscuous, sleeping around, taking drugs. I wasn't doing any of those things. I was still a fairly naive and innocent 15-year-old kid. I was running away from home because I wanted to stay that way. Not because I wanted to do the opposite. Mm -hmm. And I kept on getting dragged back home. My parents would show up at the school and take me home or they, I was still going to school. That's how innocent I was. Wasn't even skipping school yet. Mm-hmm. Skipping home, not skipping school. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd show up and they'd take me back home. They would call the police and they'd have uh, a police report written on me as being a teenage runaway. I would do the same thing now. But of course they kept on dragging me back and they didn't listen to me when I told them what was happening. When I was 17, I was finally put into foster care and it was there for a total of two weeks before the police came and said to this foster family, uh, we didn't find any evidence. So she's going home and your relationship with her needs to end now. I wasn't allowed to talk to that foster family anymore. I didn't know that's how that worked. Mm -hmm. As far as I'm aware, that's not how that works even now. And that foster family never spoke to me again. But for that two weeks that I was there, I learned more about how a properly functioning family would work with kids having chores and dad not screaming and mom not telling you how ugly and stupid you are. Mm -hmm. It was a beautiful place to be. And it broke my heart to leave. So, of course, I started running away again. I left home when I was two days after I turned 18. And when I left, my dad gave me a ride to the airport. I was going to Arizona and he told me as we were on our way, he said, you know, your mom said that she gives you six months before you come crawling back to us. I give you three. Right away. I knew exactly in that second, I would never ask them for help again. I wouldn't give them the satisfaction again, natural redhead. I'm that rebel. I'm not going to come crawling back to you just because you said that. So when I found myself in a relationship with a man who was twice my age, uh, who basically loaned me to his best friend for a birthday party in Las Vegas in exchange for something that I believe was drugs, I didn't call my parents for help. And I didn't have anybody else I could call either. We'd moved so much when I was a kid growing up that I really had a difficult time building valuable relationships with anybody. So I really didn't have any friends. I had nobody that I could turn to. I had to go to Las Vegas with this boyfriend's best friend and get locked up in a hotel room for 52 and a half hours before I could get on the flight to get back to Arizona and try to put together some kind of a plan to get out of there. 
the front desk staff were paid to not ask questions. They were told I was allowed to get room service once a day, but they had to drop it off at the door and leave before I could retrieve it so that they wouldn't have any interaction with me at all. I didn't have a room key. So if I left the room, I wouldn't have been able to get back in. And to be able to get on and off of the flights, the boyfriend's best friend had my ID card. I had no identification with me whatsoever. It was in his wallet. If I'd left that room, I would have been homeless on the streets of Las Vegas. And in my mind, that would have been worse than just going back to where I had was living in the first place to this man that had loaned me out, mm -hmm. traded me off. And I got back and I formulated a plan and I got out very quickly. I didn't want to have to go through this. And I left, I ran as hard and as far as I could. And eventually I made my way down to Florida. When I was 19, I got to Florida. I was going to go stay with my dad's mother, my grandma, because I never really got a chance to know her because we'd moved so much. Mm -hmm. I had it all set up at the time. I needed surgery done on my knee. I had hurt myself pretty badly working on a horse farm. That's a story for another day. <laughs> it's a fun one. <laughs> And I got all the way there and I called them up to say, Hey, you know, I'm here at the Daytona beach bus station. I'm ready for you to guys to come and get me uh, so that I can stay with you and get my knee surgery and we can bond over this and, you know, get to hang out. Her husband answered my dad's stepfather and said, we're not coming to get you. You're on your own. Good luck. It was 1030 at night in a city I'd never really been in. I had $5 to my name. And I had nowhere to go. And again, I didn't have any real friendships. I didn't have anybody that I could rely on. I was on the run from bad people. Mm -hmm. And I sat down on the curb and I cried. It was one of the worst nights. And a young couple came and found me. He was in his early to mid twenties. His name was Adam and her name was Jenny. She looked 18, but she was 15. And this couple told me, come with us. We have a place where you can stay until you get on your feet. They were my saviors, I thought. What they really meant was, come with us. We have a place where you can stay until we find the highest bidder. And they sold me to a guy named Esteban after a couple of weeks of being with him. That time I was locked up in a small room for 23 and a half hours with no food, no water, no bathroom facilities. I didn't think anybody was ever coming back for me. And it wasn't until somebody came back for me that I was able to escape. I spent most of the 80s and 90s watching every episode of MacGyver ever made. And I MacGyvered my way out. I thought while I was sitting there locked up in this room, what would MacGyver do? And I did what he would have done. He could open any door with a paper clip and a rubber band. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. I picked up a lot from watching the TV, right? Mm -hmm. When I got out of there, again, I ran. I just did whatever I could to just get out. I ran for my life. And apparently California is about as far away from Florida as you can get without, you know, having a passport or dealing with very cold weather. <laughs> right. So I went to LA and my plan there was to become an executive assistant to somebody important because that was the only way I ever saw myself becoming important. If I was important to somebody important, then I could be important vicariously through them. 
And of course, as everybody does when they're in LA, right? I got into acting. I was on Alias. I was on Will and Grace. I did some other stuff here and there. It was a lot of fun. I had a blast doing it all. I modeled for Harley Davidson when I was 26. Oh, wow. I went to Pasadena City College for a little while studying physics. Mm -hmm. But I realized that a lot of the stuff that I was doing wasn't because I wanted to do these things, but because I had been raised to believe that I was ugly and stupid. I did these things because I had a point to prove. Maybe to myself, but also to the rest of the world. I'm not who they said I am, but I was very unhappy. Eventually I uh, got into the world of internet dating because that became a thing in about 2004. And I met this man online who was a really, really nice guy. Uh, he was good looking and smart and really kind. And he lived really far away. So, of course, that was safe. Right. <laughs> he, he couldn't come and knock down my door and drag me away and hurt me the way that I had been hurt so many times. Mm -hmm. So we became these this pen pal because he was so far away. We knew that there was never going to be anything other than this. Mm -hmm. And over a period of seven years we became really close. He came to visit me. I went to go and visit him. And eventually after seven years, we decided that we were in love. I had worked my way up in the world from being low man on the totem pole at, as a mall cop to being the director of public safety and security for six properties in LA County, including the Delamo mall, which is the fifth largest mall property on the oh, North yeah. American continent. And I was I was doing stuff with my life. I was mm -hmm. really proud of myself. I was going places. I had just gotten $11,000 a year raise. I got raises for all of my employees. I helped to secure the next contract. I was nailing it. I was finally somebody. I was important. And he asked me to give it all up and get a fiance visa to move to Scotland to be with him. And that's exactly what I did because of all the things that I had accomplished in my life. The one thing still missing was love. And who doesn't want to move to Scotland in the land of kings and castles and romance and beauty <laughs> and hilts and oh, oh, it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. It took that man seven years to get me there. And it took him seven days to start trafficking me. Oh, wow. My so world shattered. So this, this is three different instances when this happened. So the three third time, <laughs> right? <laughs> like three, yeah. It's like okay. So basically, have you thought like what, like why does this keep happening to me? Especially after talking to someone for seven years, learning that you care about them, and you know they might care about you, and it's like, man, you talked to me for this long just to do this act. You know, so like what, how was your mind at the time? Because it's like, why do these horrific, similar situations keep happening? That's exactly where my mind had gone. Mm -hmm. but one thing that a lot of people didn't realize was that I had undergone so much torment and so much abuse that this was something that I had begun studying on my own. So while I was going to Pasadena City College for physics, because, you know, that's the hardest thing I could possibly think of, yeah. secretly in the background, mm. 
I was studying psychology and nobody knew. I had stacks of psychology books. I still own stacks of psychology books because I wanted to know why does the mind work this way? Why do we tick this way? Why do these things keep happening? Mm -hmm. I wanted to understand. And it's, this research may be what saved my life that last time I was trafficked. I thought instantly he's doing this because he knows I'm an easy target because he knows he can because he knows all of my history because we've talked for seven long years and I trusted him and he's doing this because he's a police officer and he can get away with it. Oh, a police officer in Scotland. Yes. Oh God. So it was like a corrupt type of regime going on out there. Oh yeah. So when we have internal affairs investigating police departments out here, mm -hmm. they don't really have that there. Oh, okay. So there's already something wrong. Mm -hmm. Some of the, we called them guests. Some of the guests that would come over to the house were fellow police officers or lawyers, or judges or sergeants in the police. Mm -hmm. I could not turn to anybody in the police for help. And I knew that at the time. I didn't have my own documents, so I couldn't go to, even if I could find an American embassy, I didn't have a way to find them. He took my computer away. Mm. I couldn't find help no matter where I looked. This was also 2011. I was 31 years old at the time. And I didn't know what I was going through even had a name. Even if I did know that it was called human trafficking, I still would have said, that's not what's happening to me because of the myths surrounding trafficking, about it only happening to kids, about it being kidnapping scenarios, about, you know, it's a stranger that does this, the stranger danger lessons that we were taught back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. The most dangerous people you'll ever know are the people you already know. All right. That didn't hit me. I just thought this was some kind of a weird, awful domestic violence. And I could recognize it as being that. And I knew I needed to get out. Mm -hmm. And I had studied enough psychology at that point to understand that there were certain things that I could do. And I tried doing them. And so the first thing I tried to do was I tried to uh, get my passport and my debit card so that I could get an emergency flight out and get back to California. So I got that stuff back from him because there was one night when the abuse was occurring, we had some guests over, a man and woman, which a lot of people are surprised that women are involved in victimizing somebody through human trafficking, but this does happen too. And this man and woman were over and the person who was trafficking me, the man I was supposedly engaged to, was taking photos and videos. And I wanted to keep him happy, but I... I didn't want him to know why I was trying to keep him happy. So I made sure that he never saw the bottom of his whiskey glass. I kept that mm -hmm. thing full all night long. Mm -hmm. I got him very drunk. By the end of the night, he was so drunk that I, I was uh, capable of tricking him. I told him, you know, I've still got money in my bank account in the U.S. If you give me back my passport and my debit card, I could go down to the bank tomorrow and go get that money out of the bank. And then we could spend it because otherwise it's just going to sit there in the bank forever. Mm. And he gave me back these items so that I could go and do that. 
So instead of doing that, the first thing I did was jump on his computer and purchase an emergency flight home and wipe out the browser history so he didn't see it. The first flight out that came up was something like $12,000 and I couldn't afford it. Last minute flights out of Scotland or basically oh, anywhere in Europe are really expensive. Right. So the second day, the price dropped a little bit. The third day, the price dropped a little bit more. I only had a total of $2,000 in my bank. And I don't care how far out you plan a trip at that time from Scotland to LA. That was almost what it was going to cost. Mm-hmm. By the time I found a flight that I could afford out, it was five days away from where I was when I was making the reservation. Right. And it used up everything I had in my account, except for about $11 and change. And I got this emergency flight. I got it all lined up. I had a whole plan in my head. I didn't care if I had a suitcase or not. I just wanted out. My life depended on it, literally. Mm -hmm. And the day of the flight, I had a kidney infection from the abuse that was so severe that I was in the hospital. I had done one of the most dangerous things that we can do to ourselves. I told myself, I've been through worse. I can get through this too. But the truth is that I hadn't been through anything worse. I was saying this to try to bolster myself up, to give myself confidence. And it nearly killed me. We have to stop saying this to ourselves. We have to stop saying this to other people. If we're experiencing trauma, stop saying, I can get through this too. You can, mm -hmm. more than likely you can, but you need to get out too. Right. You have to do what's right for you in that moment, mm -hmm. not what's right for you two weeks from now. I missed the flight. It was non-refundable. So all I had was $11 and change in my bank. There's no way I was going to leave Scotland on that kind of money. I'd be lucky to be able to get a train ride to the other side of Glasgow with that amount of money. And I lost hope. I tried to take my own life and a four-year-old child saved my life. I walked down to a train station. I had spent the entire day wandering around the town, begging for somebody just to see me. Just mm -hmm. to acknowledge that I was a human being, that I was still alive because I mm -hmm. didn't feel like I was. Mm -hmm. And nobody would see me. Nobody would pay any attention. Nobody would ask me if I was okay. It was, I saw it again and again in their faces. Not my circus, not my monkeys, right? We don't want to get right. involved. Not my problem. Right. If she needs help, she knows where she can go. She can go ask for somebody for help, but I couldn't. Mm -hmm. And I went down to the train station. At the time, I was a smoker. My plan was to have one last cigarette before I followed the tracks up a bit and stepped in front of a moving train. And while I was sitting there smoking a cigarette, a man walked out onto the platform and asked me for a light. And I handed him my lighter and I told him, you can keep it. And I only said that because I wanted him to ask me, why? And he didn't ask. And I knew that I couldn't make this stranger care. Mm -hmm. I knew that it was another problem where it was another adult thinking, it's not my problem. I don't want to know. But he had a little boy that walked out onto the platform and took his hand about that time. The kid was about four. And this kid looked at me and then did a double take and looked through me. And he saw me. He saw me as a human being. And you know how when we're around a little kid and the kid can look at us and the kid's mood changes because the kid knows that we're in a bad mood or we're in a bad place yeah. or we're sad. 
and we change our face because we want to brighten up that kid's day. Mm-hmm. I tried that and it didn't work. Kids saw right through me. And I knew in that moment that I could not do what it was that I had set forth to do that day. Because if I did, I would have traumatized that child. And he never would have been the same. And I could not do to a four-year-old child what had been done to me when I was a four-year-old child. Mm -hmm. And I ended up running back to my prison that day. And I am a Christian. And I was thanking God because I knew that if I was going to be kept alive in that moment, that my life was going to mean more than that. I wasn't going to die there as some unidentified body on the side of a train track in the middle of a small town of Scotland, mm-hmm. away from people, away from family, away from friends. I was not going to die alone. I was going to get out of there. I was going to survive. And it was going to mean more than what my life had meant so far. It was 31 years of hell. That's what I survived. It was more than human trafficking. I was also a survivor of sport torture. That didn't even have a name until I gave it one. Hmm. It was waterboarded. I had sleep deprivation. I had food deprived. I went through insane trials before I was finally able to get out of there. And when I got out, it was only because I had studied psychology enough to understand what we now call trauma bonding is what we used to call Stockholm syndrome. Right. And that if I could convince him that I had Stockholm syndrome well enough, deep enough, strong enough that he could send me back to California and I could come back in six months. So he wouldn't lose his job for keeping me past my visa. Mm-hmm. And he sent me back and I went on the run. I disappeared for a long time. When you disappeared in California, for a while, it was California. Yeah, hmm. this was 2011 and in 2016. So five years, I was riding around in California and hiding and trying to disappear and doing whatever I could. I lived in El Segundo, um, uh, Lawndale, Hawthorne. Yeah. Yeah. So were you like homeless at the time or how, how what was going on? I ended up staying for a little while with who I thought was my best friend. Uh, she had been an employee of mine when I was the director of security. Mm-hmm. I reached out to her and she gave me a place to stay. She was still working the graveyard shifts at the job that I gave her. And she, when she went to work, I would go to sleep in the bed. And when she got home from work in the morning, I would get up and I would go to work. Mm-hmm. So basically I would have been homeless. And for a little while, I very nearly was. Because when she found out what had happened to me, she started telling people that I had been a high-priced call girl. She couldn't understand how something like that could have been anything except for my choice. Right. How could somebody make an adult do something like that? Mm-hmm. And it completely tore me up. I did whatever I could to make friends and connections because I had been so deprived of human connection. Mm-hmm. And one of those connections turned out to not be a very good person. But he allowed me to stay in what was the guest house behind his home for a little while. And he tried to use that to his advantage. He tried to do exactly what so many others had done. And I left there and stayed with another person that I met through work. Same thing happened there. 
-hmm. the only people who were really standing up and trying to offer me any kind of assistance were men who had ulterior motives because they were the easy ones for me to try to manipulate into giving me a place to stay. Mm. They were the ones that I understood because those were the ones that I had been around my whole life. Right. Eventually I established myself well enough at work that I was able to get my own apartment, a little tiny studio place. It was great. I had a little bit of freedom. Then I became the flight attendant, but I, I did that for two years, three months, 28 days. Not that I was counting. <laughs> I'm sure that was fun. <laughs> oh my gosh. So it was when I was a child, I was very much an extrovert. Mm -hmm. because of everything that happened, it turned me into an introvert. So I was dragging myself out of my comfort zone on purpose by doing this job as being a flight attendant, mm -hmm. because I understood that one of the stronger trauma reactions that I had was this people pleasing. People pleasing is a trauma reaction. A lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. And I knew that being a flight attendant, I could get this out of my system a little bit faster. So I mm -hmm. found a healthy way to be able to channel this. Mm -hmm. So that two years, three months, 28 days, not that I was counting, was both exciting and very much outside of my comfort zone every single day. Mm. And it helped me to recharge a battery, but also exhaust myself to the point where at night I didn't lay awake with waking nightmares. I passed out because I was so exhausted. Mm. It was healing for me to be outside of that comfort zone all day long, 14, right. 16 hours, right. going places I had never been, even though I was terrified of traveling because of what had happened the last time I had traveled. Mm -hmm. I knew that if I didn't face these fears, I was going to live in fear and I couldn't do that. Wow. That's interesting because I often tell people that they have to put themselves in situations where they could actually overcome adversity, fears, et cetera. And so for me, you know, those medals back there, I used the Spartan race, you know, so that's a challenge that I put myself through to push myself, to push my limits. But you, you know, we have to do things that do that, but then in a healthy way, like you being a flight attendant is one of the most rewarding ways you could possibly do that. You know, you're traveling, you get whole, you got a hotel, you get a, a stipend for food, you know, it's like, it's amazing. So it's, it's really a blessing that you even like became a flight attendant because I know that's a very sought out career for almost, you know, every American, like everybody wants to be a flight attendant, you know? Oh, so it's yeah. like, it's a good thing that that happened. Yeah. And I've told that to people too, you know, my life mm -hmm. probably wouldn't be where it is now if I hadn't become a flight attendant. There were 400, approximately 450 people that showed up to the interviews that day. Mm -hmm. And they were only going to hire 50, but interview in four other cities also mm. knowing this i fully did not expect to get the job and i knew this before i ever went i didn't go to the interview because i was thinking i wanted to be a flight attendant it was quite the opposite i went to the interviews because i was working on a short story that i was writing and i was looking for a vapid airhead stereotype that we th i used to think of when it came to flight attendants this is oh they're just those people I was looking for one of those to write about so that I knew how to describe them and their walk. And those people didn't mm -hmm. show up. Who showed up were people like me, people who had 
trauma in their past and a people-pleasing trauma reaction who were looking for ways to be able to help as many people as possible. And I was shocked. Hmm. Not as shocked as I was when they hired me, but I was still shocked. <laughs> yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, the friends that I have asked flight attendants did go through childhood. <laughs> I don't think I'd even think about yeah. it like that, but that was like, say both of them, you know, it's a, it's a common ground because I was like, Oh, she's a flight attendant. And you know, you think of like this perfect pritzy person, but then when you talk to them, it's like, Whoa, I didn't know you went through all of that. You know, it's like, Ooh, yeah. wee, you know, cause it's like the image that you have is like what you see on TV. So did you kind of have like, you know, did you end up noticing that a lot of those people did go through some type of traumas growing up, like your coworkers and things like that? Pretty much a hundred percent of them. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And there was something else that I noticed with them too. And I started doing a little bit more research within psychology because of it. Mm -hmm. Almost every single one of the flight attendants I worked with claimed to be an empath. But what was really happening was that people were confusing being an empath with being hypervigilant. Mm -hmm. This is another trauma reaction. So these people are out here thinking that they're empathic when really they're hypervigilant and they are honing in because of what they've experienced. They're honing in on what is the most dangerous person in the room. And they think that they're empathic by being able to tell without understanding what, that that person is in a bad mood. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with a survival instinct and brain is running the show. Right. Right. Yeah, because a lot of people claim these, uh, you know, because I, I ended up taking a test and I'm an introvert and people are like, what? But I'm like, I really am. Like, I don't really like because I'm not just going to go somewhere and start a conversation. But if there's something that I like to talk about, you know, I will have a conversation like I'm not the type to be like, hey, guys, come on. You know, I'm like I'm the quiet, reserve, sit back, watch, listen. But an introvert necessarily isn't somebody that just is quiet and doesn't like to talk. You know, they usually right. are the people that are in their mind, you know, in their own mind. And so I say, you know, being an empath, right? I was I often think about this because it's like most of the people, you know, I grew up in the inner city in L.A. So I grew up in Carson and I went to school in South Central. And I started to notice that the people that grew up in these po poverty neighborhoods, they more so could like tell human interactions and read people more than anybody I've ever known. Yep. You know, and that's because I say, even if you say like one sentence, they could pick up on your intentions, but it's like, and you know, they might snap or, you know, they might, you know, they're like real on edge, but it's because they've been abused, taken advantage of and went through so much trauma that they tend to pick things up at a faster rate than somebody that didn't go through that, who may deem to be naive. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So I lived for a little while in South Central. I was at uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard in Arlington Way. If you know oh, wow. Yeah, I know exactly where you were at. <laughs> right. Do you know yeah. how many times that McDonald's has been has been held up at gunpoint? Oh, my gosh. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I lived out there and mm -hmm. the family that I lived with were exactly that way. Mm -hmm. They picked up on anything and everything even more than I did. Mm hmm. And they would tell me, be careful of that. I don't know that person, but be careful of that person. Right. They knew these things. Right. They were really in tune with it. And people that have experienced trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma. Like I said, it's not a tra competition. Mm -hmm. 
obviously they've been through some stuff. If they're going to be that hyper vigilant that they were able to help me to avoid some dangerous situations. Right. They were the first people to warn me of the guy, guy in Scotland and I didn't listen. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Cause it's like now all, basically all of the things that I've been thinking about is like coming to pass because I say in certain communities, someone might be like, yeah, you should do that. You never know. You might love Scotland. And they're just thinking about all of the, you know, the positives. Right. But then yeah, you go oh, but so with somebody that's there. like, yeah, it's beautiful out there. You could, you know, travel, do all of these things. And then you go with someone that's, you know, in a poverty stricken area, but they are, they're listening with like a listening with a different type of ear. You know, they're like, nah, this don't sound right. Like what, <laughs> you know, like you're oh. moving to Scotland and you don't know this guy. You don't have no family out there, you know, like say, what if something happens? What are you going to do? You know what I mean? So it's pretty interesting that, that you say that because now I'm connecting all of this. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. people, inner city people are some of the most emotionally intelligent people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. That's why I keep them around <laughs> to a certain, Me too. To, to a certain <laughs> extent, because it's like, you could go somewhere like say with me, you know, when I go places, people will be like, why do you look lost? And it's like, no, nah, it's not that I look lost. I'm more so observing my surroundings because I've been put in traumatic situations. So I'm paying attention to every single person that's around me, you know, and if somebody yep. is walking suspicious or you know, it looks kind of funny. I'm I'm checking them out. But then I notice that some people, when they go somewhere, they're just locked in and they're in their own world and they don't even care to look around or check their surroundings or anything like that. You know, they're doing this. Right. Exactly. They're doing that or they're just like, but I'm the type of person like, OK, all right. Or that guy, you know, it's like I'm reading the whole entire room, yep. you know, and but that puts your back to the door. Hell no, no. You know where all the exits are. You yep. know where the bathroom is in case you need to get there quickly because somebody's coming in the front door and he's got a weapon. Yep. You already know. Like, say, I remember going somewhere with a, a female friend of mine. And, you know, we're both from the inner city. And she was just like, my back is not going against the door. And I'm like, OK, well, I guess we're going to be sitting next to each other facing the door because, yep. I, you know, you can't pay me to do that. You know, yep. like, there's no way. There's very few people everything. I can ever do that with. My husband now uh, is one of the few people that I can sit with my back to the door because I know he's got my back. Right. Right. And, and you know, it's crazy because it's like, even though that's a, a positive to us, it's still a trauma response based off of the things that you've been through. And I don't think that it's like necessarily a bad thing, but it's just like, it's, you know, it's just a response to the situations that you've been in growing up, you know, and I tend to, um, like say with me, instead of looking at some things as like a post-traumatic stress disorder or trauma, it's just like, man, maybe that was just a lesson that you had to go through to protect yourself, you know, right. and to maybe give somebody else the advice. So say, and I was going to say this as well, say for someone like you, right, you went through that three different times, but then the way that it happened was like you were just being an innocent person because if you are somewhere in a different state stranded with only five dollars you know you're going to be like man this person came up to me it's a blessing i got a place to stay whatever like why in the hell would you say no right. like what you're a like young man and a young lady 
Right. Exactly. Like, but there's no, there's nothing that could possibly make you say no in that situation. But then it's like, you know, but, but now it's to a point where it's like, maybe you went through certain things to help you overcome, you know, overcome certain traumas. Cause a lot of people never do, you know, they die with the traumas that they're holding inside, but then to also be able to teach and talk to other women and other people, you know, people period about some of the things that can happen to them when they end up trusting the wrong people and not paying attention to certain signs or certain red flags, right. you know? So it's like, I'm, I'm just looking at it like, man, this is nothing but a testimony because you know, cause I don't know what else, what else it could have been, you know? Cause it's like, it, I feel like a lot of the things that, that you went through, it's like, you weren't intentionally putting yourself in these situations. It was like, shit, I really don't have a choice besides the guy in Scotland, you know, right. but then you could say for well, seven been, years, seven years, exactly. Seven years, but Man, there are stories, game. but I guarantee you there's a story of some people falling in love on the internet that lived in another country and ended up having a happy, loving life. You know, and they probably known each other for six months. You know what I'm saying? That could happen. That could happen as well. But you know, it's like every every story is different. You know what I'm saying? But be to be able to be a testimony to tell people certain things and give them the lessons that you've had, and you know, and they don't necessarily have to go through it to end up learning these lessons. You know, I say if I see one of my friends flashing money online and, you know, dollar bills, I'm like, hey, man, you probably don't want to do that because certain right. people got people know, you know, because I had a friend that is funny because what's well, not funny, but I have a friend that put up some diamonds like diamond rings and all this jewelry and stuff on his Instagram. And then the next day he got killed. You know, oh. and I was saying that that was like, oh, he got shot. But then I, I remembered, I was like, man, he was showing all these, all this jewelry, all these diamonds on his Instagram and everybody knew where he lived. It wasn't hard to figure out where he lived. So what is, you know, what are criminals going to do? What criminals do? So it's like me knowing that I'm telling people like, hey, man, you probably don't want to put your money on the Internet. Like You never know what's going to happen, especially if you're walking around with cash. You know what I'm saying? But these type of things happen, you know? And it's like, I'm, I've always been a fan of uh, autobiographies and I would read, you know, things that people been through and be like, okay, I need to avoid these situations because more than likely this will happen, you know? So I always want to say, you know, I enjoyed every bit of this, you know, listen to your story, you being absolutely vulnerable and telling, you know, telling people things about yourself that, you know, that you're just kind of like, look, this is what happened. This is me, but this is who I am now. Because I had a conversation with a friend earlier and she was like, oh, I don't want to go and do a live and be on the internet, et cetera, because I want to protect my image. But I'm just like, you know, nowadays people respect people being authentic, you know, and I don't feel like we're in the age right now where people are going to judge you for your past, uh, especially if you're being a victim of something. You know, people really like, you know, because back when we were going up, it's like, like you said, your friend said that you're a call girl and, you know, all of these different things. But a lot of people didn't know or have the emotional intelligence to be able to like, you know, you know, basically like understand victims. It was more so if you're a victim, it's your fault. Yeah. You know, yep. it's like. And I do still get that sometimes. Yeah. 
you know, I, I do still have the people to say, you know, it's your fault because you didn't leave. I was trying to leave, but that's mm -hmm. irrelevant to them. Yeah. So I actually did write and publish my autobiography that actually came out in June of 2021, which was my 10 year anniversary of freedom from trafficking on June 19th was the day I left Scotland. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. That's, that's, that's a great thing. But then it's like, we, you know, we don't, we, you never know until you're in that situation, you know, cause you're getting abused, you know, like you said, I'm not sure if you, you got, you got physically abused, right? I yep, just assume I'm, that. Right. So physical, it's like mental, emotional, sexual, everything that you can possibly think of. Right. And so you, people think that they understand, but they will never understand until they're put into those type of situations. Cause it's easy to say, well, why didn't you do, well, why didn't you fight? Well, why didn't you, well, until you get put in that situation, you tell me what you did. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Like, well, or, you know, cause all that, what if I, I kind of, you know, cause that happens to me sometimes I'm just like, what can I do? It happened. You know, like I, I can't think like that. I'll just have to move forward, you know? Right. And we all have different reactions too. There, you know, we have all heard of the fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. Well, a few years ago they added the freeze. So it's flight, fight or freeze, but the survivors of severe trauma and abuse at the hands of somebody else also have a different way of reacting. Mm -hmm. It is now fight, flight, freeze, or please. Mm. What can you do to appease this person so that they stop hurting you? Right. That's your response in an emergency situation. But that only comes about from a lot of grooming and training. Mm -hmm. and that's what I had to go through. And I went through that for such a long time that that was my automatic response for any kind of abusive situation. What can I do to appease this person so that this stops? Right. I don't do that anymore. I'm not a doormat anymore, mm -hmm. but I was for the first 40 years of my life. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I could definitely see that. But it's like, what can I do to get that person to leave me alone? And so I don't cause any conflict and I could just get off easy because I'm used to abuse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Man, this has been great. Like this has been a very eye-opening conversation about, you know, resilience and just basically never stop, you know, believing in yourself and also just, you know, it's basically we could all we could always change and we could always do better and you don't have to be a victim of what you've been through, you know? And I love these type of stories. I went off when we first got in contact, I was like, oh, hell yeah, I'm going to do this, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because it's like it's real, it's genuine. And it's like, you know, I just love hearing about it. like I because I, I'm not a part of that world. So it's kind of like it interests me just to hear something from the horse's mouth and not the news or a rumor or things like that, you know. And you know, when we first started, you had mentioned something about we hardly ever hear from survivors. Mm -hmm. That's because that less than 2% of all victims of human trafficking get out with their lives. The fact that I'm still here is a miracle. The fact that I'm able to talk about it, even more so. Damn. 2%? 2%. Yes. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I could understand that because it's like, if you do get out, then the people that are doing the abuse are going to get caught up. So it's like, 
if this happens and hey, you you know, you have to be the one that has to go. So that that definitely makes sense. And so what are some of the things, you know, in closing, what are some of the things that you would tell, you know, young people or people, period, that could probably help them prevent things from happening, things like this from happening to them? Listen to your gut instincts. I ignored mine more times than I can count because I kept on thinking, no, I'm just blaming this or accusing him of being just like this other person that existed in my life. If these gut instincts are popping up and saying, whoa, pump the brakes, pay attention to that. That's not just you being paranoid, even if they might accuse you of it. Pay attention. Listen to that. Make sure that anybody that you're talking to, whether you have a friendship or a romantic relationship with them, make sure that they can't pressure you and manipulate you into doing things because they will always take that a step further. Always. You have to learn what your boundaries are. We talked very early on about having healthy boundaries. This is more important now than ever. There are more people in human trafficking now than at any other point in human history. Wow. Wow. And now I'm seeing a lot of people get arrested for it too. It's like a a task force against human trafficking. And I'm like, whoa, is this really that big? Like uh, 200 people got arrested and yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because this is really important to understand also. Mm -hmm. So when you have one of these sting operations where they say 200 people were arrested in a human trafficking sting operation, think for just a moment, who do you think are the people getting arrested? Um, oh, people that might work with kids. More often than not, this is a prostitution sting operation. Mm -hmm. The people that are getting arrested are the Johns, the people that are soliciting for sex. And these are the guys that would get nothing more than an 80 to $120 fine, depending on what state they're in. The other people that are getting arrested are the prostitutes the victims, the people Mm -hmm. that are being trafficked, who's not getting arrested are the people doing the trafficking, which the pimps, Mm -hmm. essentially. So when the girls are getting arrested and taken to jail, they now have a rap sheet. They have a record. And you know who's going to bail them out? The guy who's trafficking them. Mm -hmm. And now the guy who's trafficking them is telling them, I can't believe you got caught. This is your fault. You owe me that money that I just spent for your bail. So now you need to go and do this for the rest of the night to pay me back. The 100, the 160 people, the 200 people arrested. These are narrative headlines brought about to try to sensationalize the fight against trafficking. The ones we got to pay attention to are the ones that say man and woman arrested for human trafficking man in Kansas city, Missouri arrested for human trafficking. Mm -hmm. Because when you see where there's one or two people being arrested, they're not the Johns that are getting the slap on the wrist. They're not the girls that are going to, going to end up with a rap sheet and more guilt and more shame and more victimization, more debt bondage is the people that are actually doing the bad things. Mm Mm-hmm. Those are the headlines that need to be amplified. Right. Right. Because the ones that, you know, we do see are the ones that have like, you know, all of their faces, all of their pictures and stuff like that. 
Oh, but, St. John's. Yeah. Yeah, they're going to get a record, sure. They're going to be um, marked down in the police system <laughs> as this person solicited. Right. They're going to get a slap on the wrist with a fine. And they're right. going to be turned back out on the streets to go do it again. It's crazy. Because I did read that on uh, Twitter the other day. If someone was like, yeah, these person got arrested for human trafficking, they're like, oh, they're going to get they're going to get off easy. Don't worry about it. And I was just like, what? Like, I, I just read it and just kept going, you know, but you're bringing more clarity about it now because I'm like, oh, OK, now I get it. So they just say that as a headline. But it's like basically that's all that has always been going on, you know, like. Yep. But now they're calling it human trafficking and they're publicizing it. But. You know, when prostitutes get arrested, the Johns get, you know, it's like a sting operation. Like I have family in the LAPD and, you know, they would tell me they would sometimes set up sting operations to arrest the Johns. But I had no idea that they were only getting like small fines, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. They might have a record for solicitation, but that's all they're going to get. Mm-hmm. And, and until we can really get together nationwide every single state and start to change these laws nothing's going to change mm -hmm. and every single time one of these headlines hits it just perpetuates more myths about human trafficking and more victims of trafficking don't realize that they're victims of trafficking because it doesn't match what the news says it should mm. right right wow so because <laughs> i had a um a podcast about porn and the guy was just telling me that usually the girls are being pimped and you know the guys are taking pictures of them and you know posting on only fans and stuff like that but that could also be a form of human trafficking absolutely so more than 85 percent of all modern pornography is made using victims of tra trafficking i didn't believe that number for a very long time do you remember mm -hmm. when i said something about i need to get back my my passport and my debit card from the guy so i kept filling up his whiskey glass the whole night while he was taking photos and videos yeah in 2019 he made me famous on a pornography website i was asked for my autograph in a grocery store here in colorado not because i was an alias or will and grace or because i modeled for harley davidson or any of the cool stuff that i had done mm -hmm. because he saw me on a pornography website being raped and he thought it was fake what? That was when I learned how to speak up. I said, in this pornography website, this trafficker, this cop was still making money off of me mm -hmm. by posting this stuff on pornography websites where people had to pay money to be, you know, consuming this pornography. Mm -hmm. And he was including all of my social media information and any information he could find on me, including home address and phone number. And I said, if people are going to be finding me anyway, they're going to know why. Now that man is more afraid of me than I ever was of him because the people are going to find out who I am. They're certainly going to find out who he was. Mm -hmm. But yeah, pornography is a major problem. I wasn't even over there anymore. And this man was still making money off of me eight years after I left. Damn, just, just due to the videos and stuff that he recorded. Oh, wow. Yep. Videos and photos. He even bought a brand new camera while I was there specifically for that purpose. Mm -hmm. He wanted to have the latest technology so that it would be the highest resolution. It was disgusting. Wow. I have a hard time allowing total strangers to take my photo. If I'm ever sitting in a, in a restaurant now, just as a random 
example, yesterday was my birthday. My husband and I went out to dinner. Mm-hmm. There was some kind of a family Christmas party thing happening at the table next to us. And at one point they wanted to take a family photo and I was in the background. It was an automatic reaction to throw my hands up next to my face so my face wouldn't show in the photo. It's still a trauma reaction. And that one I'm not even worried about trying to get rid of right now. I'm okay Mm. with that one. But I don't want total strangers taking my photo. I'm the same way. Trust me. (laughs) It's like you don't know who's going to see it, where they're going to post it. And I remember some guy, like, I was just at a party just hanging out. And, you know, my friend was recording. And then he just basically showed me a message that a guy said about me, like, what is he doing over there? And I'm like, what? Like, he basically just made all of these assumptions based off of a video, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, you you know, you have no idea what people are going to do with anything. They could humiliate you. They could, they could do all type of stuff. So as soon as I see a camera, I'm turning around. You know, I'm not trying to get in it, all of that, just because I know the consequences of it. Yeah. But those are those are responses that, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? That could possibly help you with, you know, navigating in the world and just being more cautious about what's going on, you know? Yeah. And that hypervigilance, man, my husband didn't even know those people were taking a photo <laughs> until I went <laughs> like that. <laughs> right. Right. Yep. So, okay, Amanda, so where could people find you? Um, also, you know, I, you wrote several books, but if you could just give them the autobiography or, you know, whatever book that you want to promote on this platform, you know, feel free. So my autobiography right here, it's called Custom Justice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Custom Justice chronicles everything uh, from when I was about four years old on. But it does it in a way that's hopefully not traumatizing to other people. I left out the gritty, nasty stuff that people don't need to know. And just talked about kind of what happened and lead you to your own conclusions. Mm-hmm. And of course, it has a happy ending because you know, I'm still here. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, I've got 13 books total all since 2018. To be able to find my books, they are on Amazon, but I would suggest going to Barnes & Noble. For one, it's a better print and two, they're faster at shipping them out than Amazon is for whatever reason. And you can find my work, my books, all that stuff on my website, growthfromdarkness.com. And you can also communicate with me either through that website or through Facebook because I'm on there far more often than I should be. And I'd probably write more books than two per year if I wasn't on Facebook as much as I am. (laughs) Yeah, that's, I mean, Facebook actually helped me write write my first book because I was just used to like, you know, putting my thoughts on there and do, 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 do. And I'm like, man, why don't I just put this into a book and, you know, do something with it instead of just like giving it out freely on the, on the Facebook blog <laughs> website. Everybody's getting your content for free. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's, you know, you gotta, you gotta pay for the, for me now. All right. <laughs> and so uh, do you have a website, social media, things like that? I do. I am growthfromdarkness.com. Mm-hmm. And I'm on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all those is at detailed pieces. Detailed pieces? Detailed pieces. Okay. All right. Oh, okay. Wow. Just like it, just like it spelled. Detailed pieces. All right, Amanda. So I can you gave us our closing remarks already. Again, this has been a great conversation. Like I really want to thank you for coming on and being vulnerable enough to share your story. Cause I know how much courage it takes. You know, I was reading you while you were telling the story and I could, 
you know, tell how some of your reactions were, you know, it's like, damn, I gotta, I gotta basically go into that dark place and talk about it. And I just know it takes a lot of courage to do that. You know, no matter how many times you tell it, no matter what, it's like, you're still going back to that moment and telling the story. And I just know that that takes a hell of a lot of courage, you know? Thank you. You're very it takes welcome. a lot of courage to be willing to listen too. Mm-hmm. So thank you for what you're doing. You're giving people a voice when they have been silenced for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Thank That's you. Why so many survivors don't speak up is because they've been silenced so often. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said before, I'm a firm believer in learning from other people's stories. So it's like, I know that this is very important work. And if more people told their story, you know, it could heal a lot more people in the world, you know, because at the end of the day, we are not the only ones. And, you know, in America, there's a lot of division and it's like, you know, we all go through something. We all have our own past and, you know, no matter who we are, you know, even the, the, even, you know, throughout all walks of life, like you probably could have came from wealthy parents, but they were on drugs and they were gone all day and, you know, they neglected you, et cetera. Like it's all kind of scenarios that happen with people. But we can all we can help each other as long as we're just, you know, sharing our stories and we're communicating and we're all knowing that, hey, there's hope and, you know, we're all going to be OK. Because if I listen to your story and I've been through the exact same things and you tell me that you're happy, you're married, you're a grandmother now, you know, you're living a great life that gives a lot of hope for someone like me. You know, hope so. I hope so. That's my main reason for doing this Mm -hmm. is to show people that there is hope beyond the darkness. Right. You can grow from all of that. Right. And I'm glad you did. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. So have a great rest of your day and yeah, keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to connecting with you on social media too. Right. Yeah. I got you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome.